0: Welcome to Illuminating You, the podcast where we dive deep into your powerful stories. Here at Illuminating You, our guests authentically share their stories of struggle, resilience, and hope. I'm your host, Danny Frank, and together we'll embark on this journey of speaking the unspoken. Welcome, Illuminating You listeners. I am so excited to introduce our guest for today's episode. I met Jeremy a little over two years ago when he was just a couple days sober. I reconnected with Jeremy about a week ago when he expressed interest in being a guest on this podcast. And I told this to him at the end of the call. I said, Jeremy, I am not talking to the same guy that I met a little over two years ago. So without further ado, Jeremy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Jeremy, can you share with our listeners what your life was like growing up in McEwen, Tennessee?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First off, I want to say thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I grew up in rural America, in the, in a, in, you know, in the Bible Belt, man, about 45 minutes loosely uh, west of Nashville, Tennessee. It was a really, I would, I would, I would say poverty-stricken community. That's not necessarily part of like my story, but it, but it's definitely like the environment that I grew up around. You know, my, my mom and dad have been married for 36 years. So, I, you know, I grew up with both parents in the household. And, and it's kind of funny, man. One of the things that I tell people a lot of the times, because when they hear some of my background or like what happened to me along the way, there's like a common misconception dude, that I came from the streets necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not that's not the case. I grew up in a very loving, well-to-do household with both parents. I have an older brother and a younger sister. So I grew up as the middle child. And early on, dude, I just remember life being like really good. I never wanted for anything. Both my parents worked really hard. And for the most part, dude, I I have very fond memories of like Christmases and birthdays and and my parents coaching teams and, you know, just, just, you know, we were a family unit, you know, and we had extended family in the area and and I, I remember just a really loving household, you know, and things weren't always perfect. They weren't always great. And and if you would have asked me a few years ago, I would have had like some harsher judgments about some things. I think that a part of like growing up and, and becoming a parent yourself, you kind of see that like sometimes, dude, you, you have these judgments about your childhood or about your parents or even pick out like very specific instances and, and blow them up into big deals when really in the big scheme of things, dude, I had a really, really good childhood. I do remember things probably for me, like the first time that I ever remember, like experiencing any kind of like trauma or having any kind of like real anxiety as a child, dude, was probably, I would say probably about the time that I was in the fifth grade, probably, mm. probably about 10 years old or so, dude. I just remember, dude, that like the dynamic in my household changed. And what I mean by that, dude, is like we, we had learned that my mother had gotten ill with some kind of illness and they weren't exactly sure what it was. And I, and I remember just like having this extreme anxiety about, you know, what's going to happen.
2: Mm. You know,
1: yeah. I noticed that there was a shift in my parents' relationship. I noticed that there was like a shift in my father's demeanor. You know, my my, my dad was always a very hardworking Blue collar, red blooded American guy. You know what I'm saying. He he come out of the military. You know, and um, loved his kids very much. Yeah. You know, and and wanted to give them. He grew up very poor and wanted to give them the life that he didn't have. Just like your good old American story. And I will say that that there were times, dude, where I think I think that he struggled a lot with like his work home family balance mm-hmm. and he tried to he tried to like make up for a lot of the times you know he was he was a provider man like that and i feel like that he thought that that was his sole job looking back now i can see how growing up my father was very emotionally disconnected
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know and i don't i don't fault him for that at all well we can only use the tools that were given and my father grew up without a father mm-hmm. you know so I, I feel like my best traits came from seeing the way that my dad handled situations yeah and so when you lack that when you don't have that growing up you don't know you mm-hmm. know so i feel like he was literally trying to figure things out as he went along and he did a great job yeah. you know despite how it may be viewed that his his kids came up you know and not saying that my brother and sister are not successful in in you know many facets of their own life
2: yeah
1: i feel like maybe there was a time in my childhood where things were not so great. And I, I think that a lot of that may be centered around this this one ordeal. Not to mention, dude, that like there was three of us. Me and my brother, dude, we were wild ass kids, man.
0: <laughs> I can so see that. We were,
1: we were wild, man. And we did a lot of stuff, man. And, and my parents were old school, dude. We suffered the consequences, mm-hmm. you know. My, my father was a disciplinarian and my mother was kind of the one that was like, she was the nurturer, man. She was mm-hmm. the lover, dude. Like I, I I learned so much of like the compassion that I have for other people. I learned mm-hmm. that from my mother, the empathy, you know, having empathy for others dude, which is a huge part of my life. Now I, I learned that from my mother, you know, I learned more of like my leadership skills, man. And like, you know, management and, like, those are the things that my father excels at. And I learned a lot of those things from him, man. My parents instilled in me a lot of great, characteristics dude, that I've, I've carried on with me my entire life. And I'm grateful now that I've gotten to to get to know them on a much more personal level now that I'm in a much different place in my life yeah. than I have been the majority of my life. But I, you know, school dude, I did well, man. And, and uh, moving on through the years, dude, I, I became somewhat popular. I went to a very small school, so it was easy to be a big fish in a small pond, mm-hmm. you know, and especially like my parents were people that were well known in the community you know you kind of there's this there's this weird environment there dude where like you can kind of you know you you may be viewed in a certain way based on how much money your parents make and Mm -hmm. what kind of you know car you have sitting in the high school parking lot or things like that you know like every teen does dude i went through different phases man and i had different struggles but for the most part dude i had a very stable loving home environment dude where my parents were willing to do whatever they had to do to make sure dude that like we were okay despite a lot of the adversity dude, that might have been going on in our household.
0: Jeremy, when did drugs start playing a significant role in your life? And what role was that that they played?
1: Wow. So I can remember my first drink and I I remember it very vividly. I will say before I talk about this, that my entire life I've had like despite all the successes that I had, you know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. and despite like how I was viewed in the community and despite like who my parents were and, and all these different things that I thought really meant something at the time, mm-hmm. despite all of that, I always had this feeling inside of me, dude, this, this deep seated thing that made me feel it, it's almost Yeah, You know, it's, you know, I've often heard it described as like a deep seated separation
2: mm. or
1: like um a feeling of less than, or, or just like, I'm not a part of a lack of community. I always felt like I was the guy who had missed something
0: that mm-hmm. everybody
1: else knew, yeah. you know, like everybody else in my life knew something that I didn't know. And like, I always thought that I would catch up eventually, like maybe do that. I would just, you know, was, was developing this skill later on. Like mm-hmm. it's still today, dude, it's very hard for me to like place my finger on a way to describe this feeling, but I can remember having this yeah. forever. Mm. And when you grow up that way, you just kind of think that surely other people feel this way too. Yeah. I, I never knew that I was I was different in this way, dude. That I felt a deep-seated disconnection from even the people that I love the most. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it very difficult to be close to people. And so I faked a lot of things. I faked a lot of relationships, dude, or I pretended until, you know, act as if, you know? So I I say all that to say that when I was 13, 14 years old, dude, and I had my first drink, that was the first time that I ever felt that feeling alleviated. You know, like I had some, there was a release there. There was like this feeling of like, okay, this is what I've been missing. Now I know what everybody else knew. I I didn't want to let go of that. I liked the effect that alcohol gave me that night. And when that effect wore off, I went back to feeling as if I didn't know. And I wanted to chase that. And so I think that even at that early age, there was this learned behavior that, hey, if I drink, if I can find some way to change the way that I feel, I can capture that again.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, and I I wanted
1: that. That's the role that it started to play. And the progression of my illness started on that day. You know, this, this disease that I have, this addiction, this alcoholism, this substance use disorder, whatever you want to call it. That was the day that the progression of my disease started. Moving on forward from that, dude, it didn't take long before I took it to excess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I drank as often as I had the opportunity to
2: mm-hmm.
1: until I turned about 15 or 16 years old. And then I started smoking marijuana, dude. I started using cocaine. I started experimenting with methamphetamines. You know, I, I grew up in a community, especially at that time where methamphetamines was prevalent. And every time I would try a new substance, I had this thought in my head that was like, all that stuff before was good, but this Mm, is it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I always had this idea that like, now I've reached a place, dude, where like, I can be okay. And if I can just do this every once in a while, like I've been able to do ever since the beginning, then I'll be all right. At this point, dude, I'm still able to hide it. I had a lot of success in Mm -hmm. sports, big fish, small pond again,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: I had these dreams and these ideas, dude, of being able to go on to a collegiate level and playing some kind of small role in college football mm-hmm. or something like that. And then I had this idea that like, you know, if that doesn't work out, then it seemed like the military worked really well for my father, you know, and, yeah. and that was definitely something that I wanted to pursue. What
0: ultimately happened? That was what you were looking at when you were finishing up high school. Well, that's
1: that's an interesting question. So about two weeks before I graduated from high school, I was arrested for felony possession of marijuana with uh, distribution. I was ultimately, dude, I was pulled over with a um, quarter pound of marijuana. Looking back on it now, it was like, wow, dude, you know, I feel like I threw away a lot because yeah. of that, you know, you have certain points, dude, in your life where it's easy to look back and say, that was a pivotal moment where things really started to like, yeah. you know, and, and, and after that, any ideas that I had about really furthering my education as far as the, the collegiate level went, dude, mm-hmm. or like, you know, I, I can even remember going to the military recruiters after that and them just basically turning me down.
2: Mm.
1: It really kind of left me with limited options, yeah. you know, and the and the options that I had that weren't necessarily the ones that I wanted. It was basically like okay, now I'm going to stay here in small town America and I'm, mm. I'm going to work Yeah. Um, in that area, dude, you, you more than likely you work a factory job mm-hmm. or if you're lucky, dude, then you'll get on at one of these big plants, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and work your way up from there. And I definitely could have went that route. But again, like this progression of my disease at this point, dude, and especially with like that setback in my life, what you know? did your
0: life look like at that
1: point? Well by the end dude like I had I had jumped full on into like uh, opiate use. Most of it started off with like pills and 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 it didn't take long to where I figured out that like IV drug use was the best way for me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It was it was it was it was the way that I wanted to use. And and again dude like I had reached that point and by this time, dude, like I'm in a long-term relationship with a, with a girl that I met in high school and she's living with me at my parents' house and I've been arrested a few times for, for different things, you know, and, and so I can see my life heading down in this direction, dude, that isn't necessarily what I what I had in mind for myself. But at this point, I've developed a physical addiction to opiates mm. and I'm kind of already kind of getting stuck in this cycle, dude, where I don't really know how to break free from it. Um I think that was the first time that I went to treatment. Um and it was like this little 30-day deal. I didn't really learn anything, dude, and yeah. and that was because I, I didn't really know what I was supposed to be learning. Like I didn't really understand what the point I thought that the point was like to create some separation between me and the drug, to detox off of the drug and Mm-mm. then go back out and and try to live a normal life. And I think that the reason for that is is because I didn't understand yet that My drug use was part of a much bigger problem. I lived under this uh, delusion that all I had to do was put the drugs and alcohol down. Yeah. And then I would be okay. You know, I I didn't understand yet that my substance use was a a symptom of the actual disease that I have.
0: Yeah. Much bigger than the substance.
1: Huge. Yeah. Way, very much bigger than than the substance use disorder.
0: What did your relationships with your friends, your girlfriend, with all the people in your life, what do they look like during this time?
1: They were definitely, by this point, dude, they were on the decline. God bless my parents, man. They've always held out hope for me, you know, and they they held on to that hope. And I felt like they always thought or they always hoped that this was just a phase and Mm -hmm. that, you know, Jeremy's going to turn it around any minute or maybe he's just a late bloomer or maybe he's still trying to find himself or, you know, and I think there was a lot of like blaming themselves that went into some of that. And so they showed me a lot of grace probably too much my relationship with the woman that would later on have my child and become my wife was already starting to like Mm -hmm. dissolve and that was mostly because i was really unwilling to pick a direction my life was wanting to go she had already like committed to a direction that she wanted her life to go and she was really wanting to like focus on that and to be honest with you dude i just wouldn't really work because that would take time away from what I actually wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was, was get high, yeah. drunk, you know, as far as friends go, dude, I mean, most of the people at this point dude, that I'm hanging out with are they're also doing what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I surrounded myself with those kind of people because that was really the only place where I didn't feel judgment. I was using IV drugs at a time when nobody else, even, even some of the, the worst addicts that I knew weren't really doing that. Like that was something that I even kept hid from a lot of the other addicts that I, mm, that I wow. used with. Yeah. Because it was at this time, dude, we're talking like 2006, 2007, this is not okay with these people. And I do remember there being times where like some of the worst addicts that were very much like me mm-hmm. really looked down upon like what I did, you know? Wow. So yeah, absolutely. You know? And, and so Again, dude, like I always felt like I never could really, even in the way that I really sought out acceptance, you mm-hmm. know, I surrounded myself with people that did the same things that I did, who felt the same guilt and shame that I did about what I was doing, Um, who really didn't have any direction in their life like I did. I still felt a lot of judgment from them too. Yeah. So it was really kind of like a double-edged sword there, dude, that I often like had to try to navigate and work my way through.
0: Jeremy, a lot of times when we talk about Addiction. We talk about a rock bottom. Did you have a rock bottom moment before you got sober?
1: Yeah, I absolutely did. My rock bottom was where I stopped digging at, and what I mean by that, dude, is to me it doesn't really matter like where I ended up or what I was doing. I'm a trash can junkie, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And you know, we're talking about 15 or 16 years of IV drug use. We're talking about the progression of a disease that got very, very ugly.
2: Yeah,
1: it took me places where. I faced some long-term incarceration. It caused me to do things that I thought that I would never do. Yeah, Anything that resembled life to me at that time, which was still very elementary,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it had reduced it down to like nothing. I had pretty much given away anything that I'd ever worked for. Any kind of success that I would ever had had been followed up by even more disappointment. And once you kind of, follow that. So once you ride that cycle, dude, of like this hopelessness, I call it, the, it's like this wheel of hopelessness, dude, that I just rode continuously. Mm. And sometimes dude, you do reach a point where you're like, well, maybe I'm about to do something. Maybe mm-hmm. something's about to happen. Maybe I can do this or maybe I can tweak that, you know, but, yeah. but again, quitting substances was never an option for mm-hmm. me. Like that was not in the wheelhouse as far as like, how can I fix my life? Because I lived under this delusion that, like, I have to do this. The best way that I can put this is using drugs and alcohol did not turn me into an addict and an alcoholic. I use drugs and alcohol because I am a drug addict and an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I never had a choice. This thing was predestined. It was always going to happen. If you ask me, I was born with this thing. Yeah. And so... The trajectory that my life went on, I feel like it was always going to happen that way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't if it was when and how. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I'd reached the age of 33 years old, I was in and out of hotel rooms all the time. I would spent many nights on the streets there at the end before I went to my last 30 day inpatient facility. Basically, dude, I was just living upstairs in my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And that was only because I really believed that they were keeping me there because they didn't want me to die in the streets. Yeah, I I was close. I was close. You know, I knew, I knew in that point, dude, that I was dying Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to do about it. You know, and, and as much as like, I was ready for the end, because by this point, dude, the, the reason that I was using the drugs and alcohol, that separation that I was talking about earlier, it, it no longer solved that problem
2: wow
1: you know like the whole reason that i had continued to keep doing this thing the juice was gone by this point dude i it was all i knew yeah you know like i had been doing this thing my entire life dude like like literally drugs and alcohol are all i know yeah all i know is shooting dope all I know is doing street shit, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I don't know anything else. Yeah. I don't know how to hold a job, dude. I don't know how to have personal relationships with people. Yeah, You know, I don't know how to save money or have a bank account. I don't know any of these things. Yeah. I don't know how to do them. I don't even know how to be a father to my own daughter. I don't know. All I know is wake up, figure out a way to get money, figure out a way to get a ride, figure out a way to get drugs, use those drugs, rinse and repeat over and over and over again. Dude, I did that for years. Eventually, did I reach a point, man, where I think my parents didn't know what to do with me. They, they felt like if they, if they put me out, dude, then I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And if I was at their house, they could at least keep an eye on me. By this point, dude, my relationship with my mother had really deteriorated to the point to where I, I think that it was easier for her to write me off, to start creating some separation. I think in, in her mind, dude, she lost her son a yeah. long time ago. Mm. And and you know that's sad, dude. You know, yeah. to sit there and watch as somebody slowly kills himself over a period of years,
2: yeah,
1: is probably one of the saddest things that a parent can go through.
2: Yeah, and
1: I feel like my father, man, he was just holding on to the smallest bit of hope, dude, that he had left. That like maybe, maybe there's something else that we can do. And so I had went to a treatment center earlier in 2021 in Athens, Georgia, and. I had a bit of success there. I was still very early on in, in learning like how twelve-step programs work and like what recovery was. So I did really well while I was there, and I left with the best of intentions. But if you're as sick as I am, like for me, a thirty-day treatment,
2: mm-hmm. detox
1: that 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 was never going to work for me.
2: Yeah.
1: And so they they basically said, "Look, Jeremy, you can either leave our house and go." to the streets and I didn't want I didn't want to do that. I'd been there. I'd done that. Dude, yeah. I, I didn't want to go back to that. Yeah. Or you can go back to treatment. And even then my father, I remember he expressed to me, man, he's like, dude, he's like, I don't really think this is probably going to work. I don't know how this wow. is going to be any different than what it was before. He's like, but I don't know what else to do.
2: Yeah.
1: We packed up and we went the next morning, man, and I remember the ride being down there, did I just that was day zero for me, you know what I'm saying? Like I was extremely yeah. under the influence we even stopped on the way down there a few times, dude. And it just, you know, and I was just trying to get the rest of it in, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: So by the time I showed up there and New to say, dude, I was, I mean, you saw the picture,
2: Yeah. you
1: know? And, uh, when I got there, man, I, I would, I would say, dude, that I, I wasn't combative, dude, but I was not ready for all of that. To be honest with you, I had a really great time when I was there earlier in the year.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: when I got there, I realized that this was not going to be that. Yeah, you know, i i I realized that like my detox was very difficult.
2: Wow, I was
1: I was struggling with some physical ailments, dude. I I was really really like my weight was really low. Mm-hmm. I was struggling to to eat. My energy level was just not there. Like I I just I I can remember them being there for about five days and them starting to taper me off of the detox meds and me being like, dude, I don't want I don't want to fucking do this. Yeah, and had I had any options, I would have definitely left. And there was definitely thoughts that I had while I was there that like, I wonder if I can successfully take my life in this place. And I, and I shared those thoughts and feelings with a counselor there who really helped me out a lot. You know, she was very patient with me, dude. And she worked with me and she listened to me, Mm -hmm. you know, when she asked, when she would bring me in her office, she would ask me, she would say, Jeremy, what do you need? And I would tell her every day, I was like, I don't know, but I, I need some, I need some relief. And so she worked really hard to try to find that for me. And, and I feel like that was instrumental in my stay there to see that people actually cared Mm -hmm. to see that like, there are people who are never probably going to see me again after I leave here that genuinely want me to get well,
2: Mm -hmm. you know?
1: And another thing that I had this shift while I was there, I had this realization that like everything that I had done in my life up to this point, I had done the wrong way. And so I convinced myself that there is a there is something that is flawed in the way that I think. And the only way for me to combat that for right now is to stop thinking for myself. Wow. And so I, I literally said, look, I'm willing to do whatever y'all tell me to do. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of the things they were telling me to do, I was like, fuck that shit, dude. I didn't want to do it. <laughs>
0: You <gasps> yeah, know? I mean, absolutely.
1: they were throwing things at me and I was like, are they literally picking all the worst things that I, they could possibly pick? Like, yeah. you know, they, they, they were like, look, we want you to stay an additional 30 days. And I was grateful for that. But when they first told me, I was like, no, bro, I don't want to do that. You mm-hmm. know, what I wanted to do was I wanted to go back home. Like I did the last time, convince my parents that I was okay. Mm-hmm. So they would trust me a little bit so I could go back out and continue to keep doing the same things. That's yeah. genuinely what I wanted. But when I realized, dude, that we'd played that game, dude, and, and and they weren't biting on that, that was really whenever I I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna re- relinquish some some power here, dude, and y'all tell me what to do.
0: What do you think the best suggestion they gave you was?
1: They told me to go to sober living. Mm. I mean, that for me that was the game changer.
0: What were the initial thoughts of go to sober living?
1: I didn't want any part of it. You know, it had oh. been suggested the first time that I went there, and I didn't want any part of that. and when I expressed that to one of the counselors there, she she asked me she was like, "Why is that?" And and to be honest with you, the only thing that I could come up with is because I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid that I'm going to get there and I'm not going to be able to do it. You got to understand that I've never been able to quit drugs and alcohol ever in my life. They're asking me to give up this thing, this this coping mechanism, this tool that I've used my entire life to combat what I know now to be a mental disease. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I have a mental illness that I was using drugs and alcohol to combat, and you're you're asking me to give that up, and and so there's a lot of fear that comes along with that, dude. There's a lot of fear that like they wanted me to go in a place that I'd never been before, where I didn't really know anybody in a state that I'd never lived in before, mm-hmm. and wanted me to you know figure it out, and that was scary to me, even at, even at 33, 34 years old, that was. That was a terrifying thought to me. Yeah. You want me to give up everything? You know, and, and I only had a very little amount, but they wanted me to give all of that up so that I can come down to this place and maybe get sober. Yeah. You know, and that's a huge maybe. I'm a guy, dude. I'm I'm a thinker, man. I'm a I have a, a mind that is always trying to solve problems, dude. I, I want to see the statistics, man. I'm analytical, dude. I, I want to look at things, dude. I want somebody to show me. And nobody could show me. Nobody could say, Jeremy, if you put in this amount of work, then you'll stay sober forever. Nobody could show me, Jeremy, if, if you stay sober for this long, you'll be sober forever. Because it doesn't work that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it, it just doesn't. Yeah. But I wanted to see that. And if you couldn't show me that, dude, I didn't want nothing to do with it. Yeah,
0: Jeremy, what were the first days at Sober Living like for you?
1: They was scary. There was a lot of fear there, but they were some of the easiest days by this point, dude, I had accepted, I had accepted, you know, that like, this is what it's going to be for a little while. I'll never forget it. My dad picked me up from an inpatient. I was ready to leave. I'd been there for 60 days. I was ready to go. Me and my dad had a great conversation on the way down there. I didn't have much, you know, I'd pretty much come from a situation where I pretty much lost even the clothes that I had. I pretty much lost everything. Mm -hmm. So um, my father graciously, we stopped. He Bought me some clothes, he bought me some toiletries, whatever. He tried to put me in the best position to be successful. Yeah. And and he's always been that way. You know, so I can remember feeling even then like a lot of gratitude. Like, man, I'm I'm really glad that, you know, he's still willing to stop and do this for me. I can remember, man, we pulled up to the sober living that I'm still at today, the Hickey house, dude. It's in Helen, Georgia. And we pulled up there at the intake house, and my dad helped me bring my bags in. We had a a small chit chat in the room that I was in and basically we went back outside to the truck. (laughs) He gave me a, he gave me a $60 gift card that was a rebate to, I think the tires he put on his truck (laughs) because he didn't trust me with cash. He said something to me that has stuck with me and he may not even remember this, but he said, we need you to try to do this on your own. And it may not have been exactly like that, but, in, mm-hmm. but, but it, you know, in not so many words, that was the message that I received. I took that to heart. I was like, yeah, I do need to do this on my own. And a lot of stuff for me, dude, kind of fell into place right after that. Even though I had this fear, the guys there were like really helpful, man. And so day two there, dude, somebody calls the house and said, hey, does anybody there need a job? I was like, yeah, I need a job. And before you know it, dude, I'm working. And I'm making pretty decent money, man. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm cooking in this German restaurant, and it's all a new experience for me. And it's very humbling, dude. I just yes. remember that like this is work that before I would think was beneath me, but at this time in my life, dude, I'm very grateful to have it. And I'm in there, dude, and I'm dirty, and I'm slinging food, and I'm learning all this stuff that I don't know. You know, yeah. what I'm saying I don't know how to do a lot of this stuff, but dude, I can just remember like getting off at work and feeling like I accomplished something today. You know, what I'm saying yeah. I didn't get high today, and I made some money. And you know after a couple of weeks dude I'm I'm paying my own rent you know and I haven't had to ask my parents for any money and I got me a sponsor and I'm going to meetings and I'm following the rules for the most part you know I'm not going to say that my time at the house at the very beginning was perfect dude I definitely there was times where I got fed up with some things dude, and I had a few behavioral issues and, but, but nothing major, you know, i Mm -hmm. definitely got told to shut the fuck up a few times. (laughs) I definitely had to redo my chore a few times and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, you know, but for the most part, dude, I just remember those days being like really easy and things kind of just taking care of themselves. And that was a huge shift for me, dude. That was like very much. I was like, I was able to breathe for the first time in a long time because things, things were kind of taken care of. And I felt good about it because I was taking care of them.
0: Jeremy, do you feel like that feeling of separateness started to leave
1: you? It it definitely took some time. I can't exactly tell you how sober I was. I was working program, 12-step program, and I was going to a lot of meetings. And I was working the steps that the program suggests. And there come a point where one day... I woke up, you know, we, we used to have a, our our ADA used to tell us all the time in these meetings, he would say, he would say, fellas, unfortunately, this might be as good as it gets. And there would be times where he would say that. And I would be like, surely not, bro. But I can remember laying in my bed one morning, waiting for the noon meeting and looking over man. and, And I definitely had some step work I needed to be doing. And, and, and I was just kind of chilling there. The TV was off. I just got done with uh, some prayer and meditation time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I can remember sitting there and thinking and remembering him saying, dude, that like this might be, and I remember being like, dude, I'm okay with that. Like, because wow. this is better than it's ever been. And and I can remember sitting there and thinking, dude, like, man, I haven't thought about getting fucked up for a while. And I knew in that moment, and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. I knew in that moment that something deep down inside of myself that had fundamentally been broken my entire life was starting to heal just a little bit. It was a polarizing moment for me. It it was, it was probably the most emotional moment that I've had since I started this journey. I was all by myself, but I just remember thinking like, maybe this actually, like, maybe I can, that was the first time that Mm -hmm. was like, maybe this will actually work. Like, maybe this is something I can actually do. Maybe like all this, just trying to go along and just trying to like do what I'm told and working so hard to change all these learned behaviors that I had developed over my entire life that really fed into my life as an addict and Mm -hmm. and, and an alcoholic and trying to like change those things. Maybe all this work that I was doing was actually creating some change within myself. Yeah, And that was really the point where I, I, I started running How
0: long? How long do you think that was into your sobriety?
1: Probably about eight or nine months. To be honest with you, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, seven, eight, nine months. I I can't tell you exactly, dude. I can't even tell you what step I was on. I can't tell you whether I talked to my sponsor that morning. I I mean, there's, but I do remember that feeling.
0: And I find that very interesting because I think a lot of people, I think as humans, we like quick fixes. Yeah, we like, you know, I'm going to do this and there's going to be a result. And that result for you took eight or nine months to get and thinking about too Jeremy you were probably putting a ton of energy into your recovery what were you doing for your recovery at that time
1: well I mean so whatever they told me I know that willingness is it, it, my program tells me that honesty open-mindedness and willingness is uh, it's indispensable mm-hmm. and when I first heard that I thought that I thought there's no way I could ever be honest but I started working on it the open-mindedness and the willingness just came from the idea that like, I know that I don't know what to do. And so I'll do whatever you tell me.
0: Yeah. Maybe someone else has an answer. Please somebody else
1: tell me what to do because I don't know. Yeah. If I, if I start trying to think for myself, especially in the early days, then, then I'm going to mess up because what my brain tells me to do is it tells me to run
0: mm-hmm. and it tells
1: me to use.
0: Have there been any moments in your sobriety where you've wanted to run and you've wanted to go use? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And to be honest with you, it was after my first year, you know, I picked up my year chip and I had felt this, this sense of accomplishment Mm -hmm. because man, 365 days, dude, a year before that, I, dude, I couldn't go 365 minutes without getting high. If I was dude, then I was beside myself, trying doing everything. It's three hundred sixty-five days, dude. It was a huge accomplishment for me. And to be honest with you, when you enter a year-long program like that, that's kind of like the first goal that you set your eyes on, really. Yeah. Like the first big goal.
0: And that is such a big deal. It is such a big deal to celebrate a year so. Yeah.
1: You know, they told me they told me that my first year was a gift, and I can remember sitting there thinking, like, I I, I didn't understand. And looking back on it now, dude, my first year definitely, definitely was a gift. I mean, all I was doing was meetings and going to work and doing step work and meeting with a sponsor. And that's yeah. it.
0: Your life was recovery. It
1: was all recovery. And so I tell guys sometimes I was like, dude, that first year I was a Zen master.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: nothing stuck to me, man. Things were what they were. It was life on life's terms, man. I was cool. Everything was good. Like you could not get me upset. hmm and then I got outside that first year and I got a different job and I started exploring into the dating world a little bit. And, it, and all that's kind of funny, you know, because my brain tells me that I've been in relationships before. Now, whether they were with females or whether they were with, you know, personal relationships with other people, you know, making friends. Mm-hmm. My brain tells me I've had girlfriends.
2: Yeah, I've
1: had friends. I've you know, I've had jobs before. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't hold on to them for very long, yes. but I've had jobs before. Yeah. My brain tells me that I know how to do this because I've I've done this before. And so you get into these things and you're like, okay, you know, yeah, I'm sober now, but this should be more of a business as usual thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I first started doing these things, it was literally like a newborn trying to walk. Wow. I realized quickly that I had no idea how to maintain an emotional balance Yeah, in trying to do these things. I was a wreck. I was a mess. And for me, my baseline is anger. My baseline is like, if I feel uncomfortable, I get angry. If I get sad, I get angry. If I get overly excited, I get angry. If I start to feel rushed or pushed into like a direction that I don't want to go, I, I get angry. Yeah. And when I start experiencing pain, I start trying to take control.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, when I start trying to, um, adjust things and adjust life and especially other people to suit my feelings that causes me it causes me a lot of suffering Mm -hmm. because things will never go the way that i want them to
2: yeah i'm
1: trying to control things that i don't actually have control over but i will drive myself crazy trying Mm -hmm. and so i've had to like adopt certain characteristics and i've had to adopt like More tools, dude. I've had to hit my program a lot harder. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had to dive deeper into like the spirituality of my program, man, and like really, really try to understand what my program is telling me and how to apply it to my life, and then use my experience of success and failure to try to try to figure out how this whole thing goes. I'm like I told you, I'm a very analytical guy, dude. I want to see the evidence. Well, the only way for me to get the evidence is for me to try it myself. Now, I tell you something that I have learned that I did not know before is that for me, I used to think that my recovery or my life was a series of failures and successes, right? Mm -hmm. And that they were on separate ends of the spectrum. And what I've learned is that if I'm failing I'm on the precipice of success, yeah, like it's right there within my within my reach. So if I'm continuing to keep doing these things and keep doing these things, dude, I'm hard headed. I've always been stubborn, and I've always learned things the hard way
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and unfortunately, for me, or maybe fortunately, who knows, it's taken me multiple times, dude. I gotta be burnt several times before mm-hmm. I'm like,,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. maybe
1: I shouldn't do that anymore. It's just who I am, yeah, but if I find myself, dude, like failing. And then maybe next time I feel a little bit less, and then maybe next time I almost got there, not so bad, you know i That I yeah. know dude, that yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm making, we have a word for that dude. And it's called progress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I find myself going through these situations, whether it be my relationship with my girlfriend or with my job, or maybe relationships with sponsees or whatever, you know, my position at the house or, or whatever these things are, I find myself in painful situations I've grown an awareness through my program
2: Mm.
1: about like, okay, something's going on here. It makes me feel a certain way. I have this internal dialogue and that's only through a power greater than me. You know what I'm saying? Like, like a power that I, that I call God today, it allows me to have this conscience, right? This internal dialogue Mm -hmm. within myself that tells me that like these things are happening and I don't like the way that they make me feel. Mm -hmm. And so I need to adjust. I need to adapt. I need to, learn to grow, you know, and at the same time, not try to fix them, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a tightrope there. There's a fine line, dude, that I have to try to, I have to try to navigate. You know, I used to think that my recovery was going to be this linear progression, this, this upward, like I was going to quit using drugs and I was going to learn how to live like an adult and I was going to be able to learn how to work a job and pay my bills and do all these things and like the moment that I stopped using drugs, there would be like this upward progression,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? And, and to be honest with you, for me, my experience is that that's not how it's worked Yeah. for me. It's been a lot of successes and failures and plateaus and, mm-hmm. com, you know, complacency at times, Yeah. you know, there's been a lot of trying to figure things out through real life experience. You know, and sometimes some of that hurts, right? Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of like trying to trying to juggle different things and trying to figure out like where to set up boundaries. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of different facets here that that I'm really right now in this transitional phase, dude. I'm 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 only 830 days sober. You know, and by and that's a miracle.
0: A miracle.
1: It absolutely is. If you were to ask my parents two and a half years ago, dude, will Jeremy ever get sober? They would have told you they hope so. Because they would have never let go of that hope. Because if so, they would have condemned me in their own minds. And I know that. But if they were being honest with you, they just told you no. I didn't believe it. Yeah. I look at myself in the mirror today, dude, and I say, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I feel like a fraud because of it. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute miracle that I'm not drinking and using today. Yeah. But I'm still trying to figure out a lot of this stuff, you yeah. know, and I'm still trying. I'm still trying to learn how to love people where they are, Mm -hmm. to not try to fix things. I'm not in control of any of this. And a lot of that's difficult for somebody like me.
0: And I think back to earlier in, in your story, when you talked about being in that 30 day treatment center where you finally surrendered and you're like, I don't know, give me the answers. And I think that's a lot of what you're doing today. You've kept that in your sobriety at the forefront of, I don't know people. Tell me how to live my life. God, tell me how to live my life. Jeremy, what does your life look like today?
1: <laughs> I, I can honestly tell you that today my life is better than it's ever been. Mm. Before I came into recovery, to say that my relationship with the people that I love the most was strained, that would be putting it lightly.
2: Yeah,
1: I had a daughter that didn't want to speak to me. My parents just kept me around because they didn't really know what else to do with me mm-hmm. My brother and sister didn't they didn't really want much to do with me. Mm-hmm. nobody trusted me yeah luckily i've I've earned a lot of that back. It's definitely helped to have some distance between me and my family dude i I feel like healing from a distance over a period of time it was for me the best the best method to go about it
2: mm-hmm.
1: today I feel like they they trust what they see
2: yeah you know
1: and they see. You know, we have a saying in the recovery community, dude, don't tell me what you're doing. Show me, Mm -hmm. you know, they see that my feet's moving and they see what direction I'm trying to head in. Mm -hmm. And today I can honestly say that I I have a a wonderful relationship with my mother, dude. My my father is literally, he's my hero and he's my best friend. I tell that man everything. I call him weekly, sometimes multiple times a week and and we just talk. And a lot of times, man, we just, we just shoot it. You know, Mm -hmm. I love that. I literally look forward to that every week.
2: Yeah.
1: I have a beautiful relationship with my daughter. She can count on me today. Yeah. She calls me and asks me to do things for her, dude, that I would never have been able to do before. She wants me to be a part of her life. Whereas before I feel like that she really, you know, strayed away from that. I have a great relationship with a, with a woman I've been with for over a year now. And it hasn't always been easy, but she's taught me a lot. Uh, she's, she's shown me how to love people. You know, she loves people in a way, dude, that is that is bizarre to me. And, and, I, and I say that to say, dude, that I'm learning a lot from other people, yeah. whether they're in recovery or they're not. And I don't expect anybody to be perfect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I learn a lot from the people I'm around. And I see things in people that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, she's definitely one of those people that yeah. I see things in her that I'm like, man, I wish I could love the way that she loves. Man, I wish that I could... I can be selfless the way that she's selfless. And I, and I love her for that. Today, dude, I'm a, I'm a staff member at the Hickey House. The fulfillment in my life really comes from that. There's not many guys there. There's just a handful of guys there now that I didn't see come in or that I haven't seen come in multiple times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's, I've, I've definitely sponsored some guys that I thought would never get sober. Yeah, And, I, and I've seen them pick up your chips. Mm-hmm. And, and although that had very little to do with me, it feels me in a way dude, that I've never been filled before Yeah, to see guys develop and grow in their program, to see these guys have the same miracle that I'm having right now. It's a beautiful thing because I, I, you know, just as well as I do, Danny, not many of us make it. Yeah. It's such a small number of people do that actually are able to do what it takes to get sober and then to stay sober. Yeah. You know? So when you see guys progressing down, that path, dude, in their journey, dude, it, it does something within myself, dude.
0: Jeremy, like you mentioned, not, not every addict makes it. How has that impacted you?
1: Well, I've definitely lost some people along the way early on in sobriety. A young woman that I went to treatment with, she passed not long after, after we got out of of treatment and it affected me. Um, I've seen a few guys pass that I was at the house with, um, there's a part of me, man, that I, I know that it wasn't their fault. They just wasn't ready.
2: Yeah.
1: They they didn't have the willingness. They didn't they didn't have maybe they didn't have the opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe they did and they weren't able to see it. Yeah. This disease is a killer. And although it displays itself as a behavioral issue, it's not. Mm. My disease centers in my mind Mm -hmm. and only a a spiritual experience will conquer it. I know that to be true. A
0: spiritual experience that we have been lucky enough to find. We have
1: been. Yeah. And and not everybody gets that. It also reminds me how lucky I am. It reminds me that I was in a hopeless place not that long ago where I knew that I was close. I knew that death was around the corner for me and that if I didn't change something, Then that was, then then that was going to happen to me. And, uh, although I didn't know how to change it, I I didn't know what that was going to look like. I was, I was willing to do a few things, dude, that that propelled me further along to where I was willing to do a few more things.
2: Yeah.
1: And I I really think, dude, that a, a part of it, man, is just being a little bit lucky, to be honest with you. Yeah. I was given some opportunities, man, and my disease had progressed to a point to where I was I was able to surrender some control that I is I, very difficult to do, and and that's why regardless of whether you're eating out of the trash, or maybe you lost a job, or maybe your white regardless of where you stopped digging at, mm-hmm. a rock bottom is it's very necessary for people to begin this journey because we're not going to stop unless the pain outweighs the satisfaction that we're getting from the drugs and alcohol. Mm. The only reason that I wanted to stop was because I wanted the pain to stop. Yeah. The consequences that I was accumulating were greater than what I was getting from the drugs and alcohol, which wasn't much. Mm-hmm. You know, I was left at this point, dude, where the drugs weren't working mm. and the consequences were great.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, you know, I was, I was at this point where I, I didn't know how to stop dude, but I didn't want to keep doing them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, and I, and I think only once you reach that point was I really willing to surrender. Like, I don't know what to do here. And, yeah. and really dude, that's, that's very mm-hmm. difficult to do. And when people lack that ability or maybe are enabled a little bit mm-hmm. too much, yeah. then unfortunately, man, sometimes that does lead to their demise. And yeah. it's, and it's a sad fact. There's a huge part of this disease. Over a hundred thousand people died from this disease last year. And I, I, I'm going to assume that that number is going to continue to rise, unfortunately.
0: Jeremy, something interesting that you talked about was just the simple thing of asking for help. Yeah. And not even talking about addiction, mental health issues. I think a lot of people struggle to ask, ask for help. Yeah. And I think that that is the place where when we're willing to ask for help, when we're willing to put our guard down a little bit, put our ego down a little bit. Like that's where miracles start to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the case for me, at least. It it was only once that I was able, for, like I said, for the pain to get so great, for the consequences to become so great. And what I'm talking about is I'm talking about inevitable death, right? Mm, What I'm talking about is an inevitable incarceration. What I'm talking about is my daughter- Literally having nothing to do with me anymore. My family literally, we're talking about great, big life altering consequences here, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Was I able to gain the willingness to finally let go and to say, hey, please somebody show me how it is difficult for somebody like me who definitely struggles with ego and wanting to know everything and wanting to be right all the time and wanting you to control stuff. These are part of my disease, right? For me to say, hey, I don't know hey, I need somebody else to show me, talking to a therapist, seeking out medication. These are different things that I really wasn't willing to do at at one point in my life. And Mm -hmm. even after I got sober, because it was easy for me to blame my mental health issues on the drugs and alcohol,
2: Mm -hmm. you know,
1: it's like, well, I'm not, I don't really have problems with this. The drugs and alcohol did that to me. Yeah. It's just the drugs. Yeah. Just the drugs. Right. So really for me, It was about being able to recognize that like, Hey, these are problems and they're causing me pain in my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is something I need to try. And like I said, if it fails, then at least I tried
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: maybe success is just right around the corner from that, you know, but I I have to keep trying, dude. I have to keep moving my feet Mm -hmm. and that's in every facet of my life. If I'm unhappy with something, you know, you're choosing what you don't change, Mm. And the life that I want is on the other side of the things that I don't want to do or the things that I think are difficult or the things that I'm afraid of. I try to enter any obstacle with the idea that things are going to be hard. I try to keep gratitude always at the forefront of my mind. Like, I don't always like getting up and going to work, but man, at least I'm employable today, Mm. you know?
2: Yeah.
1: I have a great job that has health insurance. Never had health insurance before. Yeah. I don't always like paying for gas, but man, I didn't have a driver's license for 10 years.
2: Yeah,
1: Thank God I can drive a car today legally. I don't necessarily like everything in my life and, and no one would ever expect me to. No one's ever going to like everything in their life. There mm-hmm. are some things that, that I have to do, but I can find a way to be grateful for them. And through gratitude I can maintain a, a certain amount of optimism and I can, I can find a way that like, it's not always I have to, it's I get to,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I get to go to meetings. I get to be part of the recovery community, dude. I get to do these things. And through that, dude, I can find some peace and serenity in my life Yeah, combined with, you know, a, a relationship with a power greater than me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I hit my knees every morning, yeah. hit my knees every morning, dude. And I've had sponsees ask me, you know, why, why do you do that? Why do you still do that? You know, why do I have to do that? Dude, that's a simple acknowledgement, dude. That there is a God, and it's not me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and and thank goodness for that, right? Yeah. I don't have to control everything. That's a big job.
0: Yes. It's a
1: big job. It's very. It's a
0: lot less stressful.
1: It's very exhausting to try to play God all the time. Yeah. You know, so so for me, man, hitting my knees is is it's there's some relief there. Like, okay, man, and then I can I can go to my higher power, dude, and and I can talk about certain things, and I carry that with me. I set the intention for the day. I have some awareness. I try to maintain some gratitude. I think of myself a lot less, dude, and try to think of others more. Yeah, I think that that's the secret. Yeah, you know, if there is a secret to any of this stuff, I think that God give me a little more of you and a little less of me.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, I, I used to think that I was gonna come into recovery, and I was gonna learn how to grow. As a person, you know, like I'm going to learn some personal growth and I'm going to learn how to be an adult and, you know, all these different things, dude. And, and what I've learned over time, dude, is what really, what I need to do is I need to shrink a little bit,
2: Mm.
1: you know, yeah. I need to get a little bit smaller
2: yeah,
1: and realize, dude, that things aren't all about me, bro. Mm -hmm. And that makes me happy, dude. That brings me some relief. And I feel like if I have one job, then it's to help God's kids, Mm. you know? Like, what can I do? You know, I ask God every day, please help me help somebody else. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I have to seize that opportunity, right? I have to set that awareness and I have to seize that opportunity. And when I'm able to do that, no matter how big or how small, I feel like I'm building up a little bit of something within myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard it referred to as like spiritual currency. I've I've heard it referred to as a lot of different things now, but there's a fulfillment that happens within myself. And when that happens... That feeling of separateness, that feeling of disconnection that I was talking about earlier, it, it disappears. Yeah, and and for me, that's where the good dope is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like that. That's where that's where I find it.
0: Yeah, Jeremy. What words of wisdom do you have for someone facing a similar situation as you? Someone who might have some time in sobriety and begins to struggle, begins to realize that their healing journey is not linear.
1: <laughs> Don't be too hard on yourself. I might have days where I feel like I utterly failed in every possible facet that I really want to succeed in. But then I remember that, hey, man, I didn't drink today and I didn't put a needle in my arm. And for me, that's success. Like, as long as I don't do those things, the miracle is still happening. And whatever I'm not doing right now that is causing me to struggle, because I do believe that all my problems are of my own creation, right? Mm-hmm whether or not it's just that I can't let some things go. And so whatever, whatever struggles I'm causing, I also have the ability to change those things starting right now. Yeah. My dad used to say this thing to me. He used to say, son, what got you here will not get you there. And so sometimes for me, dude, it's just putting forth a little bit more.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: sometimes I can do a little bit more. And I think that that's hard for some people because we're afraid of giving too much of ourselves. And, and it's easy for us to be hard on ourselves. It's, it's very easy for me to say, you know, you didn't try hard enough or maybe you gave up too soon or maybe you could have gave a little bit more,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, and I would just encourage people, man, the only time you fail is when you quit trying. As long as you're trying, dude, you're working towards success. I promise you. And most of the time, it's not near as far away from you as you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy,
0: thank you for sharing your story with us here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I just, I love your story. Just thinking about how we met and how much you have grown and how you are truly a different person and hearing how you got there is so inspiring. So I hope you inspire at least one person with your
1: story. I hope so too. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much, Danny.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Illuminating You by the Society of Authentic Living. We hope today's episode inspired you to remain resilient through your own struggles. If you have a story to share and would like to be a guest on our podcast, please fill out an interest form on societyofauthenticliving.com. That's all for now. And until next time, keep being resilient.